You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Our title of the sermon today is With Jesus, and I want to start by just talking about the chance I got to meet, given that it's Super Bowl Sunday today. I got a chance to meet a football player, Ravens, you know, the best team in the NFL. They just, <laughs> there's a whole thing with the refs, and it was a whole thing, so that's a, you can catch me after service for that one, but maybe. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, I got a chance to meet a decade ago or so. Um, I got a chance to meet a Ravens player. Um, I won some sort of Twitter giveaway thing back when it was called Twitter. Um, and it was at a restaurant. The giveaway was for a draft party. Got to meet the player. There was a whole, it's in Baltimore, so there's a crab feast with a full buffet. It was a whole, the whole shebang. And I won the giveaway on Twitter, and so I didn't have like a physical, like, here's, here's what I want, like a ticket or anything like that. So I just showed up to the restaurant when they told me to, and they had no idea what I was talking about when I got to the <laughs> host table. And they were like, uh, I don't think so. This costs like a couple hundred dollars to get in. Like, I don't think so. And then I saw the owner who did, ran the giveaway, and I was like, hey, I'm here for the thing. And he was like, okay. So he took me upstairs to where they had this whole party set up. And he said, he's with me. And so I got in and I got to enjoy the whole night, unlimited food, got to meet one of the Ravens players. Uh, he was on the Super Bowl team, Torrey Smith. And so got to take a picture with him. It was a, it was a fun evening. Um, but I share that story to kind of highlight the access that we have when you're with someone. I was with this guy and he had obviously all the authority in this restaurant domain. And so similarly, we're going to look at what it looks like when we're with Jesus. Pretty straightforward there. Um, so we'll turn to 2 Timothy, our text, our series, and we're going to be in verses 8 through 13. That's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Through 13. Hear these words, this is God's word. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your good word, and we go to you now to hear from it, and we pray that you would use me as the mouthpiece for that, and we pray that you would do that work in our hearts to have this word take deep roots in our hearts. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our text, we find Paul 
in the midst of suffering. So we've been in this series for a couple, couple weeks now through 2 Timothy. Um, he's suffering as a prisoner. He's suffering as a person who's been abandoned. He's suffering as he sees the churches and communities he loves under attack from various things, persecution, heresy, false teachers in the midst of them. And despite his current circumstances, <clears throat> we see here that it is of utmost importance, first priority to Paul, to protect the gospel of Jesus. Not that it needs protecting, but he goes out to make it clear. In fact, he spends the whole first chapter, which for us has been the past month or so, um, but in the context of the letter just a few sentences ago, exhorting the church to remember their calling in light of the gospel, to share in suffering, to be proud, not ashamed, of the testimony of Christ, and to guard the good deposit entrusted to them. Our series to 2 Timothy has echoed Paul's message in that the Christian is called to a kind of life that is not designed for this world. The Christian is called to a life that is in Jesus Christ. This is how Paul identifies himself even in the first line of the letter. An apostle of Jesus by God's will according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. That's how he sees himself. And so when we look at that, and we look at our lives and we see our world, we see and feel the tension when people that are called to life in Jesus, this kind of glorious life, find themselves instead in the thick of a life filled with sin, brokenness, sorrow, and hurt. And so in our text today, we see Paul give specific direction, specific words of encouragement, we like that, to Timothy and to, and to us as well how to live the Christian life in the face of suffering. The Christian life is synonymous with suffering. If you haven't experienced it by now or in some way, shape, or form, uh, then buckle in, because you will. That is the Christian life. Uh, there's no beating around the bush around it. Suffering is kind of like a snowflake. Each comes in its own personal special shape and form. You can marvel at it from afar. You could marvel at it from pictures in the textbook under a microscope. But um, when you're shoveling it, you're having to clean it off your car, it's not very fun. And let alone get hit, hit by an avalanche of this kind of stuff. But suffering takes its forms. Suffering takes many forms. And the Bible makes it clear that suffering, whatever form it takes in your life, is inevitable. We work really hard to avoid it, to shield ourselves from it, to distance ourselves from it, but it finds us where we are and it overtakes us, whether as a small little snowball or an avalanche. The Bible is littered with stories of people suffering. It's actually not a very happy book a lot of times when you're looking at just from a moralistic standpoint. Our text today reminds us Christ himself, who we have chosen to follow, is the chief sufferer. He suffered and he died. And so as his people, we should not be surprised at suffering when it comes our way. It tells us in 1 Peter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter warns us not to be surprised, as if something weird is happening to you. And yet I find that many Christians, including myself, were very surprised at, very ill-equipped to deal with such trials when it comes our way. Everyone has different thresholds for pain and maybe suffering to one person might be just another day for someone else. Uh, but we often feel the, the most kind of suffering when, we, when something unexpected hits our lives. But as Peter writes in this passage, and as Paul similarly reminds us in our text, we're to deal with suffering by looking to Jesus, who has and continues to suffer with us, and look to his eternal glory and our promise in him. And so we've talked plenty about suffering, both in our series and just now for the last like five minutes. Um, but how do we continue to move forward in the face of that? How do we respond appropriately to a lifelong call to suffering? How should we live this Christian life if suffering will be such an inevitable part of it? I think our text today holds a very simplistic yet foundational and profound answer to these concerns. To live the Christian life is to be with Jesus and to be with Jesus is to have a regular pattern of these simple foundational habits to remember Jesus, to endure for the sake of others, and to look for Christ's eternal glory. First is to remember Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ. These are the simple words that Paul writes in verse 8. Timothy himself was the pastor of his church, albeit at a young age, a church planner. He's got it all figured out, maybe. Uh, so you would think his advice to Timothy should be or would be something a little more advanced, something a little bit more theologically challenging, but it's as simple as one could put it to another. Remember Jesus Christ. We're barely halfway through this letter, this short letter, a couple chapters, and Paul has already mentioned Jesus eight times by name. That's not counting I mean, we've been in this for a couple weeks, and so it feels like a while, but if you look at the whole text, it's not very long. And so he's already talking about Jesus eight times by name, and that's not counting the times when he's saying Lord or God or et cetera. Um, and it kind of reminds me of my first sermons uh, almost a decade ago now where I preached on John 15, if you know that text. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And I went through about a 40-minute sermon saying the word vine about five billion times. <laughs> and I really wanted to make, this, make sure that this congregation in the East Coast of the United States of, with no, mostly no agricultural background, no winemaking, no vine dressing experience, this congregation, I want them to understand from a guy who did an hour of research <laughs> during his sermon prep with no other background in agriculture, I wanted to really make sure that they understood what it was like to vine dress and make wine and take care of the vines. So I'm sure nobody walked out of that room with anything on their minds other than vines, as it was repeated to me after the sermon. Um, 
But what Paul emphasizes here in just a short chapter is notably better. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ. Some commentators have dubbed these words the heart of Paul's gospel. Remember Jesus Christ. Sorry, I'm going to say that a lot today. To remember Jesus is to remember who he is and what he has done. To remember Jesus risen from the dead, Paul says. Very simply put, it communicates such a deep truth. It communicates the most important thing that we need to be reminded of each and every single day as Christians, which is the saving work of Jesus. Why do we quickly forget that every day as we live our busy lives? We've got long, beautifully written creeds and confessions that we would affirm as Christians, and those are so good. But we can also affirm the very basic, simple truth that is the foundation of everything that we believe. Jesus died and rose from the dead. Even that, just that sentence right there is longer than how Paul said it. Remember Jesus, risen from the dead. This is the heart of Paul's gospel, the heart of everything that he writes and everything that we stand for as Christians. It boils down to the saving work of Jesus, his death, his resurrection. And he communicates that in just a few short words. He goes on to say, remember Jesus, the offspring of David. He's the seed of David. This is who he is. Yet another very simple, few words, a very simple statement that points us back to a much larger and complex reality that's played out. That is all of God's promises throughout all of the Old Testament, throughout all of history, in just a few words, we're reminded of the magnitude of God's faithfulness to his promises. The offspring of David not just communicates his identity of being in the bloodline of David, but that all of God's promises have culminated in Jesus. It ought to remind us as we read those few words that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the anointed one. It ought to remind us that God's promises continue to point forward in time until his birth, until his life, death, and resurrection. These are the simple, basic, foundational truths that we often neglect, probably every day, to some various degrees, but more so when trials come our way. We might not truly believe them, or we have a hard time believing them in the midst of trial, given the circumstances. But sometimes we know we believe them in our heads and don't feel it in our hearts. There's such basic foundational truth that we tend to overlook the magnitude and significance of them, that Jesus, remembering Jesus, who he is, what he has done. And therefore, we lose the very foundation of our faith. Instead of remembering Jesus, we try to remember our own greatness. We remind ourselves that you've been through hard times before. You can do this. You can challenge yourself. You're self-motivated. You're, you're, you're able to do this. You're not going to let a bump in the road slow you down. Or instead, we try to rely on others. You turn to people you're close to, perhaps a friend or a spouse or you know, someone around you, even with good intentions, to seek help. But we gloss over quickly the person and work of Jesus. We don't dive deeply into remembering who he is, what he has done. 
or we can tend to wallow in our sorrows and our self-pity and continue to suffer alone, live out a miserable life, or probably something in between of all of those things. Our responses are many, but this is where Paul first turns to. When tragedy hits, when trials come our way, we will really discover ourselves because it forcibly strips away at the facade that we put on each day. Whether we like to admit it or not, we'd like to keep up certain appearances, whether physical or by status. But when suffering enters our lives, it makes us truly vulnerable and bare, and it forces us to wrestle with a deeper reality that we are truly, deeply needy. This idea of redemptive abandonment, as this one author, or these two authors call it in this book, The Cry of the Soul, I highly recommend the read. Um, I've only read sections of it, but it's been a very encouraging read. Um, and I'll read this short excerpt from it about this idea of re redemptive abandonment. God knows how to get our attention. Rather than let us wallow in the mediocrity of complacency, he lets us experience what it would be like to live without him. He abandons us in order to shatter our illusions and then lead us to a deeper relationship with him. This is a tough read because theologically speaking, I don't think God truly abandons us ever unless we ultimately deny him in a final sort of apostasy kind of way, as, the, as our text even points out. But it does highlight in a very emphatic way a biblical pattern that God distances himself from us when we are boastful of ourselves, when we are fully self-confident, when we feel like we're fully self-sufficient. If you think you got it all figured out, then go for it. This is the same approach that I've sort of adopted with our tile floors at home with our little toddler. Um, all the parents in here probably know about the toddler tantrums. I'm just learning about it. It's great. <laughs> She's, her back strength is amazing. Um, she will throw herself on the ground and throw tantrums anywhere, everywhere. She's starting to, this is recent in the last couple of weeks. And with the tile floors, you know, it's kind of hard. And I'm between my wife and I, I'm the one that's kind of like panicky when she falls. Um, and so I have to really catch myself not to overly react, but I don't want her to, you know, crack her head open on the tile either. Um, and I haven't preached a sermon in a while, so it's before we had Eliana, so I didn't want to immediately become the guy that uses his kid in the sermon illustration, but here I am. <laughs> I couldn't help it because the parent-child dynamic here is, is just so perfectly capturing how God leads us. And the metaphor kind of breaks down because she learned how to gently lay her head down. So that's a whole other thing. So <laughs> she figured out that it hurts. So she lays herself down and then kind of rolls around after that. Um, but sometimes God distances himself in the same way. 
says, yeah, you got to figure it out, then go for it. Sometimes we can look back at trials years down the road and see how God was working in hindsight. And those are great. You know, you share different prayer requests. God answered my prayers. It's so amazing. Um, but other times there's not really an explanation for why some trials come our way. We might have the theological, the correct answer that we live in a sinful and broken world. So sin has corrupted everything. Death is everywhere. Bad things will happen. Yes, those things are true. But sometimes there isn't an explanation for why bad things happen. Why tragedy strikes us. Why God lets certain things happen, even in hindsight. But we do know what is clear. We do know that we're not meant to sit in complacency. We're not meant to try and figure it out on our own or just shove our feelings down and suck it up. We're meant to feel the brokenness, the brokenness that is all around us, the brokenness within us from our own sins, as well as all of our wounds. We're meant to feel totally and utterly hopeless apart from the gospel of Jesus. We're meant to remember Jesus who he is, what he has done. This is overly simple, and yet it's so deeply profound as a key to the Christian life. We don't have it all figured out, but we've got the most important thing figured out. Remember Jesus, the promised Savior. He died for our sins, rose again from the dead. He fulfilled all of his promises. He's giving us a new life, and he promised that this new life with him will be a glorious one with no tears, no pain, no sin, no suffering. So remember Jesus in the slow daily grind of your mundane, nothing eventful happening kind of life. Remember Jesus then. Even in the celebratory, joyous occasions, remember Jesus. Build up that muscle of remembering Jesus, his works, his faithfulness, so that when everything comes to a screeching halt, because trage tragedy strikes, you can still remember Jesus, that he is good, that he will still be faithful to his promises. This is a regular habit that we need to get into. This is a regular pattern of life that we need to live as Christians. Secondly, it's to endure for the sake of others. Paul says, Remember Jesus. Sorry, I said it again. The one that I talked about in my gospel. This is the reason I'm suffering. This is why I've been arrested. This is why I've been in prison, chained up and bound. Remembering Jesus, the gospel of Christ. That's why I'm suffering. I continue to suffer and endure in it because God's word is not bound like I am. In verse 10, he says, therefore, I endure everything. And before we get to what he endures for, Paul tells us how he is able to endure and how he's willing to endure the suffering <laughs> that he's faced with. And that's because of the gospel of Christ, because he remembers Jesus. Not only does he suffer because of the gospel, but he endures, he endures because of it. I'll say that again, because I kind of stumbled. Not only does he suffer because of the gospel, but he also endures because of it. Not only is it good advice for Timothy and the church, 
but this is Paul's gospel, as in the one he also lives by. This is good news that he preaches to himself. This gospel that he preaches also points himself to the same good and faithful Savior. And therefore, he endures everything. For the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Enduring to suffering is not a new theme for us in this series. Paul's been harping on it over and over, as has Garrett. <laughs> and uh, it's been a through line, not because Garrett wants to, but it's in the text. Um, it's been a through line each week. But now we move from inward peace, personal redemption and salvation, to looking to the salvation of others. Paul's also concerned with that. And there's a few things to unpack here. As we're called to endure... This is a clear picture that God's people are not called to endure in solitary confinement. He does not isolate us to endure on our own. We endure because of and for the sake of one another. In other words, your submission to Jesus and your endurance and faith bears weight on the salvation and endurance of others. One of my all-time favorite movies, Gladiator, uh, stereotypical men. Um, the quote, famous quote, right? What we do in life echoes in eternity. And as I grew in faith and I, as I grew older in uh, life and understanding of my theology, I actually started to say, what we do in life actually has no bearing on anything in eternity because I'm totally depraved and it's solus Christus all the way. So has no bearing on eternity. But when our faith moves from be, being an independent personal activity to an outward care and concern for others, it most certainly echoes through eternity. Not that anything we do, even our endurance of faith, is a saving work. That saving work is Christ alone. But that God's people are to be an interdependent people my enduring through suffering is to be a testimony of faith that points to Christ. Your enduring through suffering is to be a testimony of faith that also points to Christ. Each of our enduring through suffering is to be a signpost, one of those big, flashing, blaring, obnoxious ones that you cannot miss that points to my own neediness and the goodness and faithfulness of the Savior who rescues us. The worldly tendency and response is to take something great, take something good, and make it maybe hidden or exclusive. I'm part of something rather exclusive myself. I don't mean to brag, but executive membership at Costco. <laughs> I know not everybody's on that level, so it's okay. Um, I once walked past a group of high schoolers trying to get into the clubhouse, and they got turned away because they didn't have a membership. They were trying to get into the food court. And I just kind of walked past them like, ah, peasants. <laughs> but I say this because Paul points this out to a guy who served in ministry. Timothy served in ministry with and alongside Paul. And he tells this, he makes it a point to point this out to a guy who's pastoring, to endure for the sake of others and their salvation not for self-glory or praise from others, but for their salvation. 
and our own sinfulness makes us act as the world would, to take a great thing, to hide it for ourselves, to make it exclusive. And we give excuses like, I'm suffering too much. I've got too much going on to care for anybody else right now. Or I'm working on myself right now. Or my favorite one is, this is just between me and God, so get out of my life. Of course, many things have their time and place. We all have personal things that we'd only share with a close friend or a spouse or maybe really just God. But in general, the Christian life is not a life lived out alone, even in your sufferings. It is intimately interdependent and tied to your Christian brothers and sisters. Endurance is to be admired. Endurance is to be inspiring. I don't want to endure myself if I had a choice. You know, some people choose to endure running 26 miles or some people choose to endure 24 hours on a mountain bike ride. Not me. <laughs> but it's certainly admirable. It's certainly impressive. It is certainly inspiring. Heck, maybe I'll even go for a mile run this week. We endure for the sake of others because the work that God is doing to move you to himself as you endure is admirable. It is inspiring. You'll notice that our text doesn't say endure for the sake of others. Word for word, it says elect and that's an intentional choice of words because for many of you who profess Christ, the church, you are the elect. And Paul's doctrine of election and predestination, we can kind of go into all of that if you're confused about that. But it can simply be understood as God is sovereign and knows who his chosen people are. We, on here, we here on earth do not. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And we do our best to assess people's hearts when it's necessary. But as a whole, knowing Jesus understanding the gospel and living it out in such a way that we can endure through suffering, that should be our primary daily goal until Christ returns so that it would knowingly or even perhaps unknowingly point people to Jesus. And pointing to Jesus is exactly where Paul goes next in our passage, and that'll be this third pattern that we can live out as Christians is to look to Christ's eternal glory. What we have in the latter half of our text is a short little poem, or some have called it a Christian hymn, maybe one of the earliest hymns in the Christian circles. It's clearly a known saying because Paul's saying it's trustworthy is a saying, um, and so something other Christians, something other believers would have recognized. I think a little better, in my opinion, than you know, WWJD or Let Go and Let God or any of those other modern day sayings. Um, but verse 11 to 13, this little poem, I'll read it for us. It says, the saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he, will, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It is, for one, very trustworthy. Paul tells us that, so I'll take him at his word, and it's in the canon of Scripture, so that's for sure. It's trustworthy. 
But it does also seem like Paul might be quoting himself here, uh, at least in part that first line that reads straight out of Romans 6, verse 8. Um, there are different kind of readings and interpretations on this text from various interpreters and commentators. Um, there's disagreements even, whether it's talking about martyrdom, whether it's talking about the kind of death that is spiritual signified by baptism. I know much less than these biblical scholars and commentators, so I don't claim to have a definitive answer. But what is clear to us here is whether by physical death or martyrdom, whether by uh, spiritual death to self and baptism, the rest of the hymn, the rest of the message of the hymn stands true. What is clear to us and important to me here is a word and a concept that Paul uses repeatedly throughout all of his letters, and that is with. More, spe more specifically, with him or with Jesus. If the words remember Jesus Christ is the heart of Paul's gospel, this idea of uniting with Christ, being with Jesus, is a close second. It envisions a kind of glorious life that is found in Jesus alone. Remember, no more tears, no more suffering, all of that. That kind of glorious life is only found with Jesus. Apart from Christ, that kind of life does not and cannot exist because he saves, he restores, he renews, he heals, he protects, he sustains. Look at the end of verse 10 again. It says, salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Then he immediately jumps into quoting this hymn that he may or may not have written or had a hand in writing. But Paul goes on and on, talking about suffering, enduring through suffering, remembering Jesus, the true gospel, and then he has this moment where he's envisioning this promised life with Christ. It is such a certainty to him. It is so deeply weaved into his gospel that he envisions it in the midst of talking about suffering and enduring, how he views his suffering, how he deals with his circumstances. This is a call to live eschatologically. In other words, big, big word to say, looking towards the end, in, to live with the end in sight. As you live the Christian life, look to Christ, look to Jesus and his eternal glory. Not just as you're literally approaching death as Paul might be, but we don't know when that is for any of us. But the end that we do know for sure, that all of us know for sure that are in Christ, is the one that is promised to us by our faithful Savior. And so we look to live, we look to live this life, the Christian life, looking to Christ's eternal glory as a pattern, as a habit of our daily lives, looking to the end, looking to the promised hope that we have in him and be joined with him. To be joined with Christ is to place your faith and trust in him. How do we do that? If you don't count yourself joined with Christ, if you don't count yourself to know Christ, to be with him in this kind of way, Please hear this. We're saved by his grace, a free gift from God. 
that gift being Jesus Christ himself. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, all of it are sufficient to free us from sin and to reconcile us to God. Jesus took our sins and he gave us his own righteousness. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he convicts us of our neediness and draws us near to faith in him. None of it is by anything that we do other than to confess our brokenness, to confess our neediness, and to place our trust in him. I'll close with this quote <coughs> from the Institutes. Calvin writes, those whom the Lord has chosen and honored with his fellowship must prepare for a hard, laborious, troubled life, a life full of many and various kinds of evils, it being the will of our Heavenly Father to exercise his people in this way while putting them to the proof. Having begun this course with Christ the firstborn, he continues it toward all his children. Remember Jesus Christ. He, as God, endured the lowly human life. He endured suffering and pain throughout his life, and especially so on his way to the cross. There he endured even more pain, bodily pain, the pain of betrayal, the pain of his father's face turning away from him. He endured, and he invites his own to join him so that we would also be with him in his eternal glory. To live the Christian life is to be with Jesus. To be with Jesus is to have this as a regular pattern of our lives, these habits. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember his gospel. Endure for the sake of others. And look to his glory but also be reminded when we forget, he will remind us. When we cannot endure any longer, he will sustain us. When we have no strength to look up at his glory, he will lift our head. Find rest this morning because he will remain faithful. He who began a good work in you will bring all of it to completion at the day of Christ. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.